Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and I'm joined today by Rachel Washburn, Major General James Spider Marks, and Peter Chur. This is our last episode for 2018. And I have to say, I've really enjoyed sharing our content with you over the past six months. Today, we're going to review 2018, as well as look forward to 2019 and discuss topics our geopolitical group has identified as key areas to keep an eye on. But first, Peter, I want to start with you. Before Rachel and General Marks discuss various geopolitical topics, uh, it's been great speaking with you and sharing your market commentary and outlook. I, I want to ask you what you think about 2019, or at least some key items that you are keeping your eye on. And also, we've talked about the trade war with China quite extensively. As we wrap up 2018, how do you assess the accuracy of our positions on trade? And moving into 2019, how do you think the trade war might play out? We've been pretty spot on in terms of how we've seen trade talks um, progress. We continue to believe that we will get what we are calling the easy deal, where China will agree to buy a lot of things from the U.S. that they were probably going to buy anyways. So commodities, liquid natural gas, soybeans, corn, etc., it will be good. In the end, we don't think we're probably going to get the intellectual property protection that we were really looking for. So as we head into 2019, look for a little bit of a shift away from trade, more into what's going on with Russia, in particular in the emerging markets. Mexico is becoming a little bit more of a tricky situation as AMLOs does seem to start following through now on campaign propaganda that seemed to diminish as the election ended and as we are negotiating the new Canada-Mexico trade deal. Lately, there's you know, problems emerging in Mexico, so that would be an area of focus. Finally, when we look at what we're seeing in the markets, two areas, the Fed, what they see in terms of growth that the rest of the world does not, as the Fed continues to tighten, at both from a rate hike standpoint and a balance sheet reduction standpoint, we are seeing increasing volatility in the U.S. and the U.S. standing out alone as an island one of the most interesting things I heard last week was Draghi specifically giving credit to QE. While most of our own Fed seems to be of the opinion that QT has no harm, so this quantitative tightening that we're going through I think is problematic. The Fed's gone too far. We're going to have to push back. And not quite related, but partly related, it is going to be what happens to credit this year. Triple B credit has been all over the news. We're actually quite positive on that. Leverage loans are lately in the news. I've been more negative on that, so I think that's a healthy repricing that we need to see. In the end, I do not see credit posing a systemic risk, and I think the opportunity in credit is probably going to be buying it at the right opportunities, and that's how investors are going to make money. Issuers are going to have to figure out how to time that market. So I'm not overly worried about credit, but we will stick to this theme where we have moved from the eighth or ninth inning of companies being able to use their balance sheet to support shareholder value to now a lot of companies are in the first or second inning of where they are going to have to protect their balance sheet to enhance shareholder value. That's a big shift in mentality. It's not hitting all companies, but it's out there. We're seeing more evidence of that. And I think that will be what defines 2019 from a bond market perspective and why it won't be as bad as many of the doom and gloom people say. Thanks a lot, Peter. I'm looking forward to chatting again in 2019 and bringing your content to our listeners. And now, everyone, I'm going to turn it over to Rachel Washburn and Major General Spider Marks for their conversation on geopolitical landscape. 
General Marks, 2018 has been a really interesting and dynamic year. We've covered issues all over the globe, whether it be the trade war with China, issues in Venezuela, and some focus on the administration and its new strategic initiatives. Sir, what should our clients be looking for in 2019? What are the issues that you think are going to be most pressing as we move into the new year? What I'd like to cover today, and and thanks, Rachel, very much for the introduction, is really preview 2019 and what we think the big issues will be um, and the things we really at the strategic level need to be contemplating, getting our arms around, and anticipating in a way that postures us more favorably for those that we can get right and for those that we always are going to be surprised and ambushed by, we're at least postured to be in a good position and to make solid decisions moving forward. So I would say 2019 is the year in which America must reclaim the initiative and reemerge as a grand strategist. You know, we were, and I would say we had a corner on that market post-World War II. We shaped the world that we know today, but we've sadly neglected that over the course of the last 25 years. And I think it's important at this point, let me step back just for a second. And again, remind everybody that in 1989, we won the Cold War and the wall came down. Um, A year later, we won a war in the Mideast against a tyrant with a military that had been restructured, uh, new doctrine, new equipment, new organization, new thinking about how we would engage militarily in the world on the heels of the malaise of Vietnam, we now validated this new capability we had. And then six months after that victory in January of 1991, the Soviet Union collapses. And it's just phenomenal. So over the course of about two years, the United States won the Cold War, validated its new posture in the world as a grand strategist, and our competition went away. Now bear in mind, China has continually been kind of bubbling along during all that period, and Russia, the Soviet Union, had been defeated. So the United States was without competition, and when you don't have competition, you get lazy, both intellectually and physically. So we're now at the position, fast forward 26 plus years, we're now at the position where Russia and China are really either peer competitors or or near peer competitors We've been busy fighting terrorism, violent extremism across the globe because it's been an existential threat. It's been the right thing to do. It's been the necessary thing to do. But while we've been concentrating on that necessary endeavor, both Russia and China have been emerging and growing. They now are in a position to compete against the United States in a very, very discernible and frankly, a very frightening way. But also, Let's talk about India. It's the sixth largest economy in the world. It's the fastest growing economy, surpassing China, with a percentage in terms of its percentage of growth. It has the world's second largest population at 1.1 billion, which is only behind China at 1.2 billion. It's a nuclear power. And coincidentally and favorably, it's aligned politically in broad strokes with the United States. That's to our great advantage. So 2019 brings us what I would call Russia recidivism. 
And I'll just list some of the areas and the issues we should be concerned about. Ukraine, Turkey, Iran, Syria, the Far East, with the notion of North Korea, South Korea, China, and Japan, all in what I would call a showdown, trying to determine what the next steps are. And Russia is right there on top of that with the United States. And also Russia's cyber activity, which is very aggressive and very well pronounced and quite professional. We have to be incredibly concerned about their activities there. Then you look at China. We are defining China now almost exclusively in terms of its economic capabilities, its ability to steal our proprietary data. And we are engaging now in what I would call a tactical standoff in terms of tariffs. But we have not necessarily defined the longer term horizon economically. And we must not neglect, and this is my concern, we must not neglect China's growing military capabilities, which are quite significant. Now bear in mind, China has never had its ground forces challenged, yet its naval forces are very, very prominent and have now become expeditionary. And beyond their activities in the South China Sea, we should be very concerned and should be watching it tremendously. Also, with cyber technology, there's exploitation and persistent surveillance of all manner of enemies online in terms of a 24-7 capability that they have, both of our classified intelligence, DOD, research and development, our government stuff, as well as our commercial banking and commerce and market activities. Very concerned about the cyber technology capabilities of both of those near-peer competitors. Sir, if I can jump in here, recently we've seen a few high-profile cyber attacks on the private sector. General Hernandez, our resident cyber expert, talks about Chinese uh, in his networks when he was head of Cyber Command on a regular, continual basis. Where does the U.S. government stand and what is their responsibility to defend forward and protect private industry as well as U.S. interests um, in the, the public realm? You know, the, the primary um, dilemma that we have, but I think we've decided on who has primacy in that area, and that really does belong to the U.S. government, specifically the Department of Defense, has an obligation to, quote, defend forward, as you've indicated, Rachel, in terms of our cyber capabilities. The intent there is to get as far over the horizon, if you will. Now, this is a digital horizon. But to do that in an aggressive, very fulsome, layered way so that we can be in a position to identify, nullify, attack, neutralize challenges before they reach, quote, the homeland, our digital homeland. So that's the defend forward piece. But in doing that, we put ourselves at great risk because there could be unintended consequences just in a kinetic, routine, conventional operation militarily when you're aggressive Bad things can happen in terms of how you can put your own force at risk. So we have to be very concerned about that. But primacy and the lead in terms of our cyber, cyber presence belongs to DOD. And then the commercial world, industry has to rely on what we do primarily in DOD because there's a crossover. In, in cyberspace, there are no barriers. We can maneuver quite freely. So that belongs to DOD to ensure that our commercial enterprises, now they have an obligation 
to protect themselves in a very defensive way, but the offensive capabilities belongs to DOD. We need to be very clear on that. And then I would also say, you know, Rachel, as we pivot, again, looking at the broad strokes of 2019, I, we do need to pay attention to India. Um, the United States benefits from a strong partnership with India, specifically in that region, in the Indian Ocean, in South Asia. Um, India is stable, it's burgeoning, it embraces the same issues and concerns that we do um, in terms of the marketplace, in terms of the environment, in terms of uh, the human condition, and also in terms of national security. So I would say those are the big strokes as we move into um, 2019. And also, let me not forget India does have a, an expanding and very professional conventional military force, as well as a nuclear force, and they border against a long-term enemy that they've learned to live with called Pakistan, which also has a checkered past with the United States, but remains a partner. They have nukes as well, so we have to really pay attention to that. So in, in terms of what I would call some wild card predictions for 2019, let me, let me go through what I think are five key areas. Number one, I think Brexit will occur but I do think Prime Minister Theresa May will be voted out. She has successfully or will success, successfully shape the Brexit deal. It'll get approval, but she will be voted out and won't be around to implement it. What that means is the power of NATO and the coalescing capabilities that NATO brings to the table that keeps Europe consolidated and moving in the same direction, sharing the same values is essential, but I also see that the value of the EU might be dissipating concomitantly. So NATO will maintain, needs to maintain that singular focus of keeping um, Europe together to ensure that we don't have a dissipation of uh, capabilities, but we can have a very strong, we can maintain a very strong Europe EU, on the other hand, will probably decrease in terms of its presence and its power and its influence. Number two, India, I think, will become the sixth member of the UN Security Council. It's high time we recognize the size of India's economy, the capabilities that it brings to the table, the stabilizing force that, is, that it is in that part of the world, and at no expense to any other Security Council member. India needs to be added. So it should become the sixth member. Number three, I think Turkey will depart NATO. Um, and in fact, NATO may ask Turkey to leave. We've got some legitimate concerns with Turkey, and we've talked about those. I see nothing on the horizon where Turkey becomes a real stabilizing force. Erdogan is not our friend. As far as Turkey goes, if NATO is going to be strengthened by, or it necessitates a strengthening, strengthening NATO by the weakening of EU. Turkey leaving NATO, is that a good thing for the alliance? Is it because there's so much tension internally? Is it ultimately going to be more healthy for it? Or do you see it uh, being sort of like a domino effect of showcasing Russia's ability to and, uh, you know, obviously all the other conditions really impact the strength of the organization. You know, the, the challenge with 
with Turkey leaving NATO is that it would not be a devastating blow. We could withstand it. But we could also invite Turkey back if conditions changed. I'm just not sanguine in the near term that Erdogan is going to alter his behavior and that he might very precipitously leave NATO. Uh, that's not to our advantage. But again, as I said, there are other ways that we could work around that. I'd hate to see that happen. But Erdogan, again, Erdogan is not our friend. He's not acting in a way that is consistent with behavioral norms, the values that we share, um, and the fact that he has, an, um, out, has this very, I think, very aggressive outreach to Moscow is very troubling. So we have to pay strict attention. And I hope I'm wrong on this prediction. I hope Turkey doesn't leave NATO, and I hope NATO doesn't invite Turkey to leave. It's to our advantage that they remain. I think number four is the U.S. will depart Afghanistan militarily. Um, we've proven politically that we can't or we will not go big in Afghanistan, which I think is a necessary condition for us to establish and reinforce the Afghan military and its government sufficiently to stand on its own. So if we can't go big, we're going to simply go away. Um, and I also think that will be a political decision coincident with the um, election in 2020. Sir, so obviously as a post 9-11 veteran affirmed, there's lots of, you know, my colleagues and myself included are veterans of this war. Um, over the 17 going on 18 years that we've been involved in Afghanistan, there's been a lot of questions about, you know, why are we still here? What is the impact we're trying to make? Um, and who is going to fill the void if and when we leave? Do you have any predictions on who's going to, to come in to Afghanistan to either help ensure stability or maybe exploit resources or try to influence um, Afghanistan in either a positive or malign way? The answer is the Taliban. They're exceptionally strong. They're growing. They own portions of Afghanistan that previously the United States, uh, with its international partners, had rendered safe. Um, the Taliban remains a very strong party. We either we either figure out how to nullify Taliban influence over the course of the next year, or we figure out how to partner with the Taliban in very precisely defined ways that are to our advantage, that are to the Taliban's advantage, but most importantly, are to the advantage of the government of Afghanistan. That's what's key in this, in, in this part of the world. Do you see Russia continuing to play a role in the peace process moving forward, or is this just an opportunity for Russia to be uplifted and highlighted in the shadow of a U.S. struggle or misstep? Russia will, Russia will take full advantage of, of the fact that the United States has struggled for, has has soldiered and has conducted operations professionally magnificently, but we haven't achieved strategic results yet in Afghanistan. Russia likes the fact that we're struggling there. They will always take advantage of our weaknesses. They will not have any direct influence in activities in Afghanistan, but by default will benefit if we decide that we have, quote, lost our engagement in Afghanistan, or we minimize our presence declare some level of success and walk away, but find that there are still legitimate concerns in Afghanistan. Russia will benefit. I think the fifth thing is that the Ukrainian President Poroshenko will not be elected, re-elected this spring 
in a Ukrainian election, which really puts a concern in my mind in terms of watching very precisely increased Russian behavior, not only in the Donbass, but elsewhere in the Ukraine. My concern is that Ukraine could, in the course of several years, be absorbed back into Russia. We have to watch that very, very closely. So let me, let me summarize these wild card predictions, if I can, Rachel. Um, clearly what we see is grand strategy playing itself out. The United States has to be able to present itself and reclaim the high ground there. And, our, and I am confident our national security strategy embraces that by establishing that China and Russia really are our two largest competitors and they move into a peer, or as I said, a near peer competitor status. That's important moving forward. Now what you've also asked me to do is to establish some quick comments and some quick hits in terms of what to watch. Sir, I couldn't agree more. I think what we've seen in 2018 and in the way that uh, the United States has uh, reorganized and reprioritized certain parts of the world is very much evidence of some of the effectiveness of the Kremlin's grand strategy. Um, and I think another thing that we're seeing in, as we refocus on China they are somewhat less antagonistic in the way that they're trying to become a major world player. And so sometimes we have ignored or overlooked their growing capabilities and the possibility for competition with China. Um, Russia, of course, is a little bit more recidivist and um, taking full advantage of where uh, the U.S. struggles on the international stage. And I think that what we've seen in 2018 and what we're going to see in 2019, of course, is going to be in direct response to Chinese and Russian international influence. You know, I, it, I think that's extremely well said. What you're, what you're really saying is that China knows how to play nice and achieve results that won't necessarily be to our advantage. Russia does not play nice and are far more hard-edged and overt, but they achieve obje objectives that are not to our advantage. Both of those are considerable concerns. And if I were going to stack both of them against each other, and prioritize, I'd say we have to be very mindful of the Chinese because they're embracing us, and as a result of that embrace, we lose. Russia's gonna get in our face. So we can see that coming. We won't let that, or we'll try not to let that happen. But they're still trying to take advantage of us. I think that's very well said. So the watch list, real quickly. Um, let me run through, essentially, let me run through what I think are five things we, we should be looking for, very quickly. Indonesia is going to have an election in the spring. I think the current president will be reelected, and that will be to the uh, detriment and disadvantage of the United States. Number two, Chinese Navy will continue to expand its presence, not only in the South China Sea, but beyond the S South China Sea. They have an expeditionary Navy. It's going to get more aggressive. We're going to see them elsewhere. Russians will have, number three, Russians will have a routine and permanent military presence in Venezuela. That's very troubling. Those two, number two, Chinese Navy, number three, Russian military in South America, really are a statement of and a challenge to existing spheres of influence. Need to watch that very closely. Number four, Mohammed bin Salman, 
will remain the heir apparent in Saudi Arabia. Number five, our posture of U.S. posture of cyber defense forward will be more aggressive, which really has a twofold implication. Number one, our security will increase, which is a great thing, but we will also increase concomitantly the likelihood of a miscalculation. We have to be very careful about those. Sir, to your number four, we've talked a lot among our geopolitical advisory board about Saudi Arabia and the future of MBS. In general, the consensus is that, yes, just as you said, he will remain um, despite his stock falling. He is the chosen son and he is the favorite, so he will remain. Do you see any other risks associated with keeping someone who's now controversial uh, on the international stage in power? Do you see any risk of maybe an internal uprising or uh, maybe a family-style coup as a result of him remaining in power? Well, we certainly have historical examples of bad dudes that remain in power after a very overt, um, what I would call, um, a display of abhorrent behavior. And both the United States and other international partners continue to embrace those bad actors because when we define them in a layered way through all those, you know, through the filter of all those elements of power, it's to the United States' best interest, national interest, to maintain some type of a relationship. So, yes, I think MBS is damaged and will remain damaged, but he'll survive all of that. Um, he's already begun to assert himself as the heir apparent. We saw that through the arrests of a number of business leaders and a number of other members of the royal family uh, when he first came to the surface about a year, year and a half ago. So MBS is going to remain in place. There's little likelihood of a coup, but there could be a change. MBS could not be the heir apparent. It could be one of the other multiple options that are out there. I won't go through all of those. But I'm sanguine that MBS will remain. He will continue to progress. They'll continue to put a bit of a shine on him. And he'll get beyond this abhorrent, unbelievably brutal murder of a journalist in Turkey. But he'll, he'll push beyond that. Well, thank you, Rachel and General Marks, for sharing that conversation. And thanks again to Peter at the beginning for sharing his market outlook. Thank you again to our listeners for taking the time. We love sharing our geopolitical and macro strategy content with our friends and clients. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to hire, train, and mentor military veterans to develop careers in finance. If you'd like to engage our geopolitical group directly, please email us at info at academysecurities.com. I'm your host, Andy Robinson. I hope you have a great holiday and a happy new year, and we look forward to speaking to you again in 2019. Thank you so much.